Welcome back to the Comics Course, an offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program, offering Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History, as a publicly available podcast. We, once again, are having our sort of off episode, and that means Jaffa Cakes and Root Beer. Today is a Melka Choco Jaffa Cake with chocolate-flavored mousse in it. Now, I like chocolate. But my T.A. Rowan loves chocolate. So what do you think of these, Rowan? They're really good. I mean, you could eat, you would eat chocolate, you know, three times a day if you could. Am I wrong? Yeah. Hold on. Maybe more. Maybe more. And we have people sneezing in the hallway, but that's okay. Now, our root beers today are two sort of art- artisanal root beers, although I doubt they're handcrafted. But the first one is a brand called Maine, which I hadn't heard of before until my other TA. What was his name? Matthew? Matthias? I don't know. I don't remember. Matthias. Oh, okay. I just usually call him Hey You. Um, let's try this one. It's strong. It is. The sassafras is very strong on this one. Mm-hmm. You want another little cup to taste? Sure. Mm-hmm. Nice. It is made with cane sugar. I, you know, to me that's a solid four. Yeah. Okay. On, a, on our one to five scale. Agreed. It is definitely better than some of the mass-produced ones like A&W. But not as good as the Virgils we had last week. Yeah, Virgils, I still think, is the best ones. But I do love the strong sassafras in it. Mm -hmm. That is a definite plus for it. Okay, our next one is Boylan's Root Beer, also made with cane sugar from a bottle. Hmm. Interesting. It's different. It has almost a little spicy tone to it. Yeah, that's weird. Can you give me some more? Yeah, let me clear my mouth out. I want to make sure I'm not getting any cross-contamination of flavors. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, folks. We'll get to comics here in a minute. Don't know what you signed up for when you were listening to this podcast, but it's root beer tasting now, too. Okay. Yeah, I don't know where the spice tone is coming from. But it's there. Mm-hmm. It's intriguing. I really like it. Mm-hmm. Not as quite as good as the Virgil still, I don't think. Yeah. But it's definitely above average. Definitely. So I think this is a solid 4-2. Yeah, same. Okay, so there we go, folks. Boylan's and Maine, both good, worthy of drinking root beers. Mm-hmm. Worthy your time. Okay. So, departmental updates. Uh, I still have not personally heard from Dr. Feckett. However, I did have the FBI drop by the other day and ask me if I'd had any communication from anybody in Sierra Leone. Interesting. Yeah. So, I'm wondering if he's, you know, kind of hanging out in Sierra Leone now. I don't know. Somebody did try to rob his office a couple of days ago, too, though. Mm-hmm. Um... I yelled at them, and they started to run. And as you know, I don't leave the office. So I just flung some raw hamburger at them, 
and let the hounds take care of them. Um, unfortunately, I think whatever they were trying to steal got taken by the hounds, too, because last I saw the body, it was being dragged across the quad. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll see what comes of that. I'm sure nothing was taken from his office that could be at all concerning. Not at all. Nope. So, today, we are going to be talking about some Batman stories. Now, I'd been planning for a while to talk about Batman anyway, because he's such an iconic figure in comic books and graphic lit. And he's been published for over 80 years now. There's fascinating history with him on every level you can imagine, from the history of publishing to the history of how creators are treated. <clears throat> Bill Finger. Um, there's a fascinating documentary about the fight to get Bill Finger rights as the co-creator of Batman, mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it. I don't remember the official title right now, but I know Hulu has a documentary, but I believe Hulu's a U.S.-only service. It is. But if you go out and search for Bill Finger documentary, I'm sure you'll find it wherever. You can access it where you're at. Uh, And in fact, it's a documentary that I think resonates with people who don't even care about Batman or comics or anything. Anyone who cares about creators. Right, and creators' rights, because it's definitely all about that. Now, these... I've been planning to talk about stories about Batman, but stories that you didn't have to be a Batman fan to read. Stories that worked largely self-contained. Stories that talk about the mythos and interesting ways for people to hold on to. But I've ended up, in part because of a question I got from a listener, uh, fixating on two particular works today that are very meaty. And I'm sorry, were you about to say something? No. Okay. They asked, why is Batman paired up against Joker all the time? And this is sort of another way of asking, why is the Joker the Batman's nemesis? And there's a lot of good reasons for that. So we're going to explore that in two works today that are classics from the 1980s, published just a couple of years apart. Alan Moore's The Killing Joke and Batman The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller. So let's jump into this. The Dark Knight Returns. Um, Well, actually, no, let's not jump in. Let's back up a second. So... The core question about the Joker and Batman, let me ask you. Now, you've mm-hmm. not read much in the way of Batman comics, if any. Uh, you've seen them in cartoons. You've seen some of the movies. I don't think you've seen all of them, even. Yeah. Um, I'd, when you think of Joker and Batman, what is the duality in your mind? I don't know. Just kind of generic nemesis. They're always going after each other. Batman's always trying to think ahead of Joker. Joker's always trying to think ahead of Batman. And in some ways, they represent good versus evil. Mm -hmm. But it's a lot more than that. It really is. So, the core question uh, is driven by a lot of additional questions. And the resolutions people have come up to these are many and varied. Some people, do you know, have approached the idea that they're flip sides of the same coin. Many people do this. They're both highly intelligent. They're both highly driven. They're both potentially crazy as fuck. Mm -hmm. And many people, there are people who have written that, you know, their relationship is based on repressed homosexuality on both their parts. No, I, I don't buy into that. I'm sorry. Some people need to disconnect from Freud a bit. 
you know, Batman does not want to hate fuck the Joker. Um, get over it. Wow. Apparently that can get a TA to cringe. Um, but no, I mean, that's really what... I mean, and these are comic book writers who theorize this, in fact. So, but there are also people who, you know, have gotten PhDs in literature uh, talking about socialist themes in Shakespeare, which I think is kind of rubbish, too. <laughs> so just because you can make the argument doesn't make it super valid in my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, the core question... The, that divides Batman Batman and the Joker is simple. The world is shit. How do you deal with it? Mm-hmm. Now, for the world, let's put the world in context here. The world is symbolized by Gotham. Gotham is its own character. A place can be a character. Mm-hmm. A place can be important and have its own aspects. Um, Gotham is hell. Mm-hmm. Gotham is the embodiment of hell. You know, I, ironically, we have Alan Moore on here, and we're also doing Alan Moore's From Hell. And in some ways, that urban hell that Alan Moore talks about in From Hell is symbolized by Gotham. Mm-hmm. Now, apparently, Gotham was originally intended to essentially be the DC's fictional version of Baltimore, mm. which certainly has a lot of crime and poverty problems. Please, if you're from Baltimore and you love Baltimore, don't hate on me. I'm talking about reflections in popular media. I've never been to Baltimore. I'm not trying to slag on it. And the DC Universe has a history of this, you know. Uh, There are fictional versions of St. Louis, um, Minneapolis, represented by Keystone and Central City, and on and on and on. And in theory, New York is represented by Metropolis. Now, Somewhere along the way, it became pretty well-established canon that DC and Goth, uh, sorry, Metropolis and Gotham were across a river from each other. What? And it, it and Baltimore and DC aren't real far apart. Although I think that would make it more like you know Jersey City. And anyway, uh, geography aside, in terms of their symbolic importance, essentially they've always both represented New. The American urban city, especially New York, but represented different sides of it. If you were to read Superman comics and look at the slums in Metropolis, they're all clean and everybody's polite and nobody's dealing drugs. I mean, even their crime is sanitized. Bank robbers don't run in with machine guns and threaten kids. They come in with mech suits and laser guns and you know, demand the money and then fly off and jet skis that fly through the sky for Superman to defeat. Mm -hmm. Which does beg the question, if you can afford that tech, why do you need to rob a bank? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering, too. Is it just for the fun of it? Yeah. Meanwhile, in Gotham, you know, a bank is robbed by a bunch of tweakers in cheap store-bought masks um, who are as likely to shoot each other in tweak-fueled rages, as they are everybody else in the bank. And one of them might just pull out a grenade and blow everyone up for the hell of it. And because of stuff like that is why I actually always originally thought Gotham was meant to represent the slums of New York. I didn't know it was meant to be Baltimore. Yeah, in a whole different city, definitely. So these represent sort of the urban ideal of America, Metropolis, and the urban hell, Gotham. Mm -hmm. 
And you can't separate Batman or Joker from Gotham. Mm -hmm. Now, this doesn't mean there haven't been stories where Joker went to New York and Gotham is, you know, uh, Batman has gone to other places. That certainly has happened. But story-wise, Batman and Joker are both entities of Gotham. And they are what they are because of how they've responded to the insanity of what Gotham is. Now, this is all another way of saying that essentially Batman represents order and the Joker represents chaos. Some people think that they represent sanity versus madness, but they really don't. Now, they're both crazy. They're, they're arguably both crazy. Now, many writers do write Bruce Wayne as pretty sane. Uh, many writers write Bruce Wayne, Batman, as kind and compassionate versus the Joker's malignancy and evil. Uh, but there are iconic versions that have kind aspects to the Joker. And there are certainly those that have written Batman extremely callous and even cruel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I generally, nine times out of ten, there are definite aspects of good and evil in them. But more than that. I would argue the good and evil are secondary. More than that, primarily, they represent order and chaos. And these are important ideas, because Batman in the comics has always represented order. In fact, many times, he ha- depending on the age of culture we're talking about that he was published in, let's keep in mind, he's been published for over 80 years, sometimes as many in as many as 10 titles a month, World's Finest, The Brave and the Bold, Batman, The Dark Knight, Detective Comics, Justice League, Batman Incorporated. I, I mean, I could go on. So, so the stories are going to change depending on how the world is at that time. Right, and has. I mean, the world has changed in the last 80 years multiple times, and the way Batman is written has changed with it. And so there have been times, for example, in the 60s, when he was a fully deputized agent of the Gotham PD. And allowed to sit in a courtroom and testify without revealing his identity. What? Which, I mean, does in fact happen in the real world with special informants, but only in very special cases. And even then, the court the court knows who it is, even if it's under very special seals. Um, but just nobody knows? That doesn't, that doesn't happen. happen. No. Uh, and then you get up to, like, say, the cynicism of the 80s, the Bronze Age of comics, when you know, dark sold, And, you know, he's an enemy of the police, essentially. And most times in his publication history, he's been somewhere in between. Yeah. And we'll see some of that in today's books. Meanwhile, the Joker is just pure chaos. Mm-hmm. And the Joker murders indiscriminately, while the Batman does not kill. Mm-hmm. Now, as brutal as the Batman get, gets, he does not kill. Mm-hmm. That's another defining difference. In this chaos that the Joker represents, life is meaningless. To the Batman, every life is sacred. Even if he beats the living shit out of them first. Good luck with that hospital bill. Don't worry, Bruce Wayne may cover it. (laughs) Um, Which actually happens some in the books we're going to talk about today. Really? Really. So, let's get into it. The Dark Knight Returns, 1986... This is one of the great milestones of comics. This cover you see right here Mm -hmm. with the silhouette of Batman against the lightning strike down from the sky Mm -hmm. 
and the dark blue background that fades to light blue as it gets behind the lightning bolt. Mm -hmm. As simple as a cover as this is, this is so iconic, it has been duplicated and paid an homage more times than I can count mm -hmm. with so many different comics. In fact, Batman comics have often paid homage to it. Spawn comics has paid homage to it. On and on and on and on. And when I was a younger man going to comic book stores and I first saw this, I flipped it open, I flipped a few pages, and I was like, man, this looks good. And the guy running the comic book store looked at it and went, you're going to want to read that. Mm. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. And I slapped down my money and it blew me away. It was amazing. Now, this book came into existence because DC had traditionally for many years, kind of been the company that had no good ideas. Everything was old and stayed and recycled. And when Jeanette Kahn took over in the 70s, she said well, she wanted DC to be the place where stories are told again and great comics are made. And one of the things she did was she courted Frank Miller, who was a New York resident and was well known for doing Daredevil for Marvel and had made it very popular. And she had allowed him to do Ronin for DC, and now The Dark Knight Returns. Now, this was at a time in Frank Miller's life when he had some challenges going on. Mm-hmm. You know, he had been mugged several times. Oh. And, which, if you're in New York City, is not that rare. Unfortunately. Um, and he had begun to think about, you know, this sort of dog-eat-dog. And I'm sure Gotham represented New York for in a very real way for him. Um, and we'll talk about some parallels with Frank Miller's perspective as we go through this, because I do think it's valuable, even though I don't like biographying as, you know, uh, when looking at literature and stuff like that too much. I also want to note very quickly that this particular book is not only written by Frank Miller, but drawn entirely by him as well. Oh, he, oh, he draws some of his own work? Yes, he does. I thought he only wrote. Nope, he draws too. In fact, he's a great stylistic artist, hmm. as you will see in this. Uh, it is frequently cited as one of the best of all time. By the way, the edition I'm reading here is the 30th anniversary edition of The Dark Knight Returns. In case anybody else wants to see it. So, uh, it opens up, you know, with all the normal, Oh my God, this is the best thing ever! I planted a copy in the ground, and I had golden pigs grow up out of it. Yeah, whatever, people. Um, now, Frank Miller did the pencils. Klaus Jansen did the inks. Klaus Jansen's a great inker. Uh, Lynn Varley did the colors. John Constantanza did the lettering. And we're going to... There are some introductory comments I'm not going to go through. They provide some fictional, you know, little newspaper articles by James Olson, a.k.a. Jimmy Olson. None of which really matter. And then we get into the story itself. When we open the first page, we get a series of panels of Bruce Wayne, who we see he has a mustache. And we don't get to see his face because he has a helmet on. But he's racing some sort of car that's crashing, and he manages to barely escape. And at the bottom, as we see the news article on TV about it, we can see this older Bruce Wayne. We're being introduced gradually to a different Bruce Wayne than we know. Uh, by the way, 
Uh, you were not born until long after the 80s were over. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're going to see some 80s in here that are going to give you a little bit of visual whiplash. Okay. You, you know, look, I could have never heard of this, opened it, read it, and gone, this was done in the 80s. <laughs> Just saying. But notice the very mute color palette. Uh -huh. You know, it's not... When bright colors are used, it's for fires and explosions. Otherwise, it's fairly muted. And we find out that Gotham's in the middle of a long heat wave. Uh, anybody who's looked at social issues and will know that in heat waves, people start to lose their minds. Mm -hmm. People become more violent. Crime goes up. Uh, heat waves are ugly on cities. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help that cities are giant ovens. All that concrete traps and holds heat badly. Mm -hmm. And the very shape of the streets and buildings around create giant conductive paths for hot air that are just miserable. And we also find out that the Batman hasn't been seen in a decade. Oh. In fact, most teenagers now believe that Batman is a myth that the older generation basically made up. Wow, that's a big conspiracy. I know. Well, think about it. There would have been no documentation of him other than newspaper articles, no photos. I mean, maybe some sort of mass hysteria. Hmm. Keep in mind, we have cases of mass hysteria in Europe from the Middle Ages where people dance themselves to death in huge groups. True. People are nuts. <laughs> that, that's the height of wisdom you're getting from me today, folks. People are nuts. But here we go. We get Commissioner Gordon and Bruce Wayne sitting down, having a bottle of scotch together, and then parting their ways. Bruce Wayne walks down the street, and then he finds himself in Crime Alley, under the same streetlight that his parents were murdered at. You know, and he some, saw them murdered. You know some bad stuff happened on this alley when people go out of their way to call it the Crime Alley. Right. And, and minor details have been changed as different writers have wanted to recast the origin of Batman and the because everybody's version agrees on the basics that were introduced long, long ago, but minor details of tweet, such as you know, did he go to an opera of Die Fladermels, which I just slaughtered German, sorry, <laughs> Die Fladermels. Anyway, um, for those seeking to do a direct tie to the bat concept, uh, while most versions introduce like the idea that they went to see the Mask of Zorro. Mm. And that the Zorro idea may have imprinted on him. And in fact, that's used here. And I would need to check, but this may actually be the book that introduced that, which has become largely canon to most storytellers of Batman. Hmm. Uh, I would need to check to make sure this is the actual first appearance, though. But I think it might be. So Bruce Wayne is standing under this light, literally in the same spot his parents were shot down and he wasn't. And these two members of a gang that's terrorizing Gotham called the Mutants show up. And they have these, you know, sort of univisors. Think Jordy from Star Trek The Next Generation, if you get that reference. Um, Rowan's staring blank ahead like she doesn't want to admit she does not get that reference. You don't, do you? No. All right, I'll just go over here and compost with age. <laughs> um, so they come at him. Come on, honey. Slice and dice. I don't know, man. He's awful big. And basically, he s starts grimacing and having this weird expression. 
And it's not clear, is he having a heart attack, a panic attack, what? But the mutants, just to show you the kind of people they are, choose not to murder and rob him because he's freaking out in a way that they think he might enjoy it. <laughs> so they're scum who kill people for fun, but want to make sure the person really won't enjoy it. Because they don't want to kill somebody and have it be fun for them. Mm-hmm. This is a, which also tells you how many people basically want to die in Gotham because their lives are so miserable. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a picture this casts, right? Mm-hmm. That two guys could stand there and reasonably go, oh, no, it's going to kill you, man. But you look like you might be into it. So we're, mm-hmm. we're going to you know skip on and find someone else to murder kill. Oh, it's another one of them. Right, exactly. <laughs> this is, I mean, it's pretty fucked up. Yeah. I mean, what a picture this paints, right? Mm-hmm. So now we go on and we get not to Arkham Asylum, but the Arkham Home Intensive Ward. Um, and we find out that the Joker has been in a coma for 10 years and is now coming out of it. Mm. This symbolically uh, is important because... It's a story called The Dark Knight Returns. Of course, Bruce Wayne's going to become Batman again. But the Batman has been in a coma symbolically for 10 years, just as the Joker literally has been. But we are introduced to a couple of doctors, one of whom's a psychiatrist, and they have Harvey Dent bandaged up. If you don't know who Harvey Dent is, that sound, by the way, is the ice in Rowan's cup. Sorry. Um... Uh, Two-Face is a character where one half of his face was horribly scarred. He was a crusading good cop um, until he was scarred, and then he went insane and became obsessed with the number two and dualities and became a villain called Two-Face. Oh. So here he's all bandaged up, and he's received extensive experimental surgeries to fix all of his scarring and make himself whole again. So now he just looks like a normal person. Well, that and hmm? well, that's weird. What? What is? Getting rid of all the scarring and stuff and seeing him as normal. Yeah. And we find out that the psychiatrist there is kind of on a crusade. That all these super villains of the past were misunderstood and need to be reaccepted in society. And, I mean, he's a sleazeball. But he's the kind of sleazeball you saw a lot on things like talk shows in the 80s with their agenda they were trying to sell. Some of whom have done serious damage to the field of psychiatry over the years, by the way. Lots. But we see all this happening, and then we get some flashbacks. Bruce Wayne is having a nightmare where he fell down into a a cave underneath Wayne Manor, and all these bats were flying around him, which traumatized him. He then gets up, goes down to the old bat cave where everything is covered in sheets except one glass tube in which is suspended a Robin costume. Now, this is the costume of Jason Todd. Now, this was originally published in 1986. This is three years after the publication of A Death in the Family. For those who don't know, Jason Todd was the second Robin. Okay, Second. Right. The first one was Dick Grayson, who went on to become Nightwing and just live his own life. Mm-hmm. The second was Jason Todd. 
And then after that were several others, which I won't get into right now. Uh, Jason Todd was introduced in a storyline where basically he was trying to steal the tires off the Batmobile. <laughs> and Batman took him in as a ward, and he was a hothead, and the writers had this long-term plan to basically start him as a horrible little punk and turn him into a hero. Mm-hmm. That would be worthy of being the second Robin. But it was a long-term plan. It was going to take years and years of the books coming out, right? Uh, probably split across both the Batman and Detective Comics title. Traditionally, whatever other titles Batman was in, he's traditionally had two titles published every month, Batman and Detective Comics. And often many others. Uh, somebody at DC had the brilliant idea of that as a combination promotion and make some money thing, they'd make a hotline. The Joker would capture Jason Todd Robin They'd have a hotline, and you could call it, and for a dollar, put in a vote for whether Jason Todd lived or died. Now, the mm-hmm. assumption was, and I, I I have heard this from people who were directly involved with this project, they had no doubt in their mind whatsoever that people would vote overwhelmingly for Jason Todd to live. Mm-hmm. Because then they could feel like heroes too, saving his life. No, that's not what happened, folks. People voted overwhelmingly to kill the little shit. <laughs> I don't remember what the percentage was, but it was like 75, 80%, something like that. I mean, there was not a margin of error involved in this. And the DC people were flummoxed. In fact, they even talked about ignoring the results. The problem, of course, is that becomes fraud Because they took money for people voting. And that's legally actionable, folks. Uh, As some Korean producers of Idol reality shows found out in the last few years. Uh (laughs) So, this is another thing. You know, the Joker has been in a coma. uh, And Robin died. And Batman retired. But now he's waking up, just as the Joker is. We go back upstairs, and Bruce Wayne is around. Alfred is still around, and he's watching the news. And he's seeing all the crime happening in Gotham from the news report. He has flashbacks to his own origin. Uh, Some brilliant wordless panels here showing the story. Really good art from Frank Miller, in my opinion. That's amazing. And I I know some people are dismissive of Frank Miller. Some people feel like Frank Miller is a dinosaur in the current woke age. Uh, I I still think he's brilliant. Not always the kindest to women, to be honest. Um, But we all have our... But I don't think he hates women. There's a lot of violence that happens to women in his comics. But it, it feels doesn't feel to me that it's because he hates women, the way some people say. I think you can have a lot of violence to women and it being about those women seen as victims, not because you... I, I think if you hate women, it would come across and be represented in a way to make it a good thing that these women are being attacked and hurt. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case in his stories. Mm-hmm. So I don't agree with that textual analysis. And as these flashbacks are happening, 
he sees his mother's pearl necklace that the mugger wanted and killed his parents for flying apart with the pearls separating to fall around the street as it is intermixed. This is the rebirth of Batman. If Batman was born on the night that Joe Chill killed his parents and these fell, it's happening again. He's listening to the pain of Gotham. He's listening to the evil things happening in Gotham and Batman's becoming reborn. That is the importance of these pages. And it's not just Batman. The title of the work is The Dark Knight Returns. And that's the important symbolism here. He's a knight. He's a symbol of good and virtue. He's a symbol of protecting people and the sort of Arthurian romantic ideal. Um, which is another topic we'll talk about at some point. Arthurian ideals and comic books. So the Batman... Bruce Wayne is standing there and suddenly a bat crashes through his window right at flying right at his face. I'm not even sure it's true. This may just only be in his mind. But there's no doubt the Batman is back. The symbolism is very strong. It is very strong. But you know, th- th- when you do things with a heavy hand, this is the, the this is how you know someone is a good storyteller. A poor storyteller does things with a heavy hand and you go, "All right, I get it. I get the point." When a good storyteller does it with a heavy hand, you go, "Damn, that was cool." Mhm. Um, so I'm, I'm not slamming Frank Miller for having a heavy hand because I still think he did it well. Also, that, that drawing of the bat was amazing with its head poking through the window. It's terrifying, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It looks like a symbol of terror. Mm-hmm. That is what the Batman is to criminals. Mm-hmm. That symbol. Now, for the next few pages, we don't get to see the Batman. We see this guy grabbing this woman and he's about to murder her. And he goes, I need you, Mommy. All we see is his glasses reflecting light. Make me feel safe. Talk soft. And then a hand smashes through a window behind him and grabs him and pulls him through the window. Lightning crashes over the city. Now here's another symbolism that's important. What does lightning come with? Thunder. And what else? Rain. Usually rain. The heat wave is broken. The Batman is back. The city's about to be reborn. And the heat washed away. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Next we see a cabbie. The uh, pimp is grabbing one of his prostitutes and throwing her into the back of the cab. Get your ugly ass in there, bitch. We taking a ride. Um... The cabbie's like, uh, look, uh, can you take this someplace else? I don't need the grief. Shut your hairy face and drive. Hands him money. All right, just make it quick. I mean, this shows how horrible the city is. A cat, you know, a pimp is throwing his prostitute in the back seat, and he's saying, you painted me, Joni. You mess with my livelihood. And he, he's about to cut her up. Mm-hmm. He's about... To viciously attack and cut up this woman in the backseat of a cab. And so long as he pays the cabbie off, the cabbie doesn't care. Mm-hmm. And this says something about the nature of the city. Then there's a noise on the roof. Whoom! Cabbie's like, hey, 
I'm still paying for these wheels. Guy in the back says, not us. And he sticks his gun out to, to scare off whatever's on the roof. Well, what's on the roof isn't scared by a gun. And next thing you know, the guy's being dragged out through the window of the cab. And after Batman deals with him, and notice we don't see Batman. The first thing we see of Batman is his blue-gloved hand reach in, take the money the cabbie was paid, and rip it up and drop it in the cab's lap. Mm -hmm. Cabbie's lap. More thunder. Rain. An arcade. Uh, we see the mutants and some young girls. I'm gonna skip. I, you know, I'm gonna skip a lot of this. I don't want to go, you know, page by page here. But we hit around page twenty, and for the first time, we see Batman, and he doesn't go subtle for this. When he decides to show us Batman, it is a full giant page, glorious, drawn by Frank Miller, kind of channeling a little Neil Adams, full on Batman in the air leaping. Mm -hmm. It is dramatic. And Batman is still going after criminals. And that's what we're getting. We're getting this continuous scene of Batman is kind of catching up. He is the Dark Knight, and he is protecting people. And he chases some criminals down, and these cops are following him. One of the cops gets out of the car and goes, Holy, I never thought you were real. <laughs> Batman looks at them and goes, These men are mine. And then does the classic pose where he whips the cape around his face and disappears. And the other cop looks to the younger, the rookie cop and goes, you heard the man. <laughs> you crazy? I'm going in. Kid, you don't want to get in his way. Kid? And so the, as the younger cop chases after Batman, uh, the older cop goes along. And I'm going through this detail because it's important to see this complicated relationship. Since Batman represents order, how is he about to interact with these police? Now, these guys are on the upper... Uh, uh, steps of this dilapidated building. There are pieces of wall missing and stuff like that. Now, Batman is much older and he's not in great shape. They're shooting at him, but he's smart. He knows how to maneuver. He knows how to use stealth to his advantage. And he takes them down, even with their automatic weapons. Has one on the floor and is starting to interrogate him. And the rookie cop comes in. You're under arrest, mister. You've crippled that man. He's young. He'll probably walk again. But he'll stay scared. Won't you, punk? <laughs> Jesus. Sweet Jesus. I mean, he's probably pissing himself. Let's see what you've got. Cigarettes. No wonder you're so slow. Oh, Christ. I mean it, man. Get away from him. I'll shoot. Older cop. Don't try it, kid. He's being patient with you as it is. <laughs> nice to have you back, Bats. Bats. Yep. Go to their car, kid. Fetch the payroll. I don't believe this. You know, so here we have these two cops. One who grew up after the myth of Batman, sort of. And is probably in his late teens, early 20s, a fresh cop. And was a little kid when Batman disappeared. And then this older one, whose Batman has saved his life in the past. Mm -hmm. And so they're reacting to this vigilante in different ways. One of whom is, you're a criminal, you're a vigilante. You don't represent order. And the other one to whom... He's the Dark Knight. Mm -hmm. He represents what they need, even if it's not legal. Hold on, I have to pour some root beer for Rowan here. She's looking parched. She might die of dehydration any second. 
And then as we go on, the Joker's awake now. He's talking to people. He's uh, reacting to the psychiatrist. And what seems to trigger him out of his comatose state the most, since he's just blindly staring at the TV, the bat symbol shown on the TV again. It's waking him up. Now, this and some other things that happen uh, bring up this argument that's existed in the comic book world for some time. What comes first, the supervillain or the superhero? Do supervillains come into existence because they see these superheroic characters that they want to be as famous as, but they aren't heroic by nature, so they want to challenge them? Do superheroes create supervillains? Um, and, of course, Frank Miller here is saying, yes, maybe they do. But you still need the superheroes to deal with the everyday crime, too. And maybe these people would be villains in their own right anyway, even if they weren't dressing up in costumes. So, a lot of black and white here. With Look at these pages. Mm -hmm. So muted. I mean, blues so light they might as well be grays. Mm -hmm. And then what? Just a sunrise for a little bit of yellow... A phone for a little bit of red, and that's it. Mm -hmm. A few colors really pop out to you, because yeah. they're mostly just basically grays. But one of the things that Frank Miller is doing here is he's doing a very noir vibe. Very pulp noir. Which, if you think, we haven't talked about this in the class, but Frank Miller did a series called Sin City, which is like this in terms of coloring as well. As the story goes on, we see that young girl from the arcade, uh, Carrie, mm -hmm. who will become important to the story. And she's becoming fascinated by this idea of the Batman being back. And the Batman, we do see being very callous, doing things like throwing a guy through a window and the guy getting a piece of glass in an artery. And Batman saying, you know, sometimes I count them just to make myself feel crazy. Your rights. You've got rights. Lots of rights. But right now, you got a piece of glass shoved into a major artery in your arm. Right now, you're bleeding to death. And right now, I'm the only one in the world who can get you to a hospital in time. So, the guy gives him the information he wants. Shocking, right? And he does other dramatic things like that, like hanging people off buildings. You know, the way you do when you're a superhero. Yeah, you know, the, the typical things you do when you want to have, you know, superiority. Right. Uh, we see him talking to Commissioner Gordon again. We see the bat light in the sky. Dun, dun, dun. And then we see that asshole psychiatrist who's looking to become famous and make some bucks by writing, by writing this wave of supervillain reform celebrity. And he's now on talk shows wearing an anti-Batman shirt. We also find out that somebody claiming to be Two-Face is hiring people for some sort of big crime and using Two-Face's uh, motifs, like a bank robbery with one fancy car and one old dilapidated one, a super modern military attack helicopter stolen, as well as an old crappy one from, from a farmer, and that sort of thing. And Batman is hoping this is not actually Two-Face. This is not actually Harvey Dent. Uh, and we find out that Harvey Dent's surgeries and restitution were paid for by Bruce Wayne. Oh. Right. 
again, this goes back to that idea of the Batman representing order. He doesn't want to just throw criminals in an asylum. He wants them to not be criminal anymore. Well, it's probably for the best because the Arkham Asylum doesn't even seem to work. No. I mean, <laughs> they keep getting out of it. So, in the course of this, we have big action scenes, which I'm not going to go over. But Batman has his confrontation, and it is Harvey Dent. And yes, Harvey Dent's face is completely fixed. He's not rescarred it. But in his own mind, it becomes clear that he's now completely covered in those scars. Ooh. By fixing half of it, by fixing his face to all be uh, non-scarred, it has broken the psychology he had in place to now, he's not half good, half evil. He's now just evil. And there's this wonderful scene where Batman is looking at him literally. And he says, I close my eyes. Not fooled by sight, I see him as he is. And he sees that total face of scars that you were just reacting to. And then with the panel arrangement right below it, we see, just as we did Harvey Dent's true face, Batman's true face. That horrible, savage bat. And that's Batman's true face in his mind. Mm -hmm. And Batman realizes that Harvey, in a way, represents humanity. Humanity is drawn between good and evil. And Gotham has accepted evil. And Batman's not going to be able to handle this the way he thought he would. Um, so if Batman and the Joker reflect the people of Gotham... In a way, Harvey Dent there represented Gotham itself and the sort of decision of a city to either be good or evil. As the story goes on, we see Jim Gordon being attacked by a kid, a member of the mutant gang, about to shoot him. A kid. A, a like, teenager, like 15 years old. And he thinks about his wife at home who's pregnant with a baby and he doesn't hesitate. He turns and shoots the kid dead. Better than being killed himself. Yeah. And then we catch up with that teenage girl, Carrie, who's fashioned herself a Robin outfit and decides to go out and be part of the fight against crime. It doesn't go real well, but she has more bravery than brains. <laughs> ah, like a true superhero. Right. Uh, we get some amazing art as we go along here. We have mutants committing crimes and Batman just taking them out. But this is clearly this ongoing scourge. We're building up this idea that the mutants are this major problem. But if Frank Miller wanted us, us to have any doubts as to whether Batman was doing what he does out of necessity... Because remember, this is a Batman who retired. He thought he could retire and not have to do this anymore. And he gladly did so. He didn't do it maniacally. It's a Batman who's threatened to let people bleed out to death in the last few pages. But he rescues this tiny child, this, uh, not an infant, but toddler, from the mutants. And he holds it comfortingly against his chest. Mm -hmm. He wants to bring comfort. He is, you know, this Arthurian knight, just darkly cast. And 
it keeps going until he tracks down through these mutant criminals he's been fighting. Not mutants like X-Men mutants. They just call themselves mutants. Uh, and he tracks the guns they have because they have like military level ordnance. And this page is so dramatic. After page, after page, after page of these extremely muted tones with a little bit of color. What do we get here, Rowan? Uh, uh, the bottom side of the background is pure black, but the top side is this beautiful bright orange with Batman sitting there in the same like dark shading we've gotten him throughout the last pages, but holding this big, bright American flag. And in that flag is a man's body. Mm-hmm. It is a U.S. military general. And you can see the smoking gun in his hand, even though you can't see any details of his body. You can't even see the hand. But you see the gun, and the reason you see the gun is the gun smoke is still hanging around it, creating a sort of aura around it. And the gun smoke floats up. And we find out that he has an honorable military service, but he secretly reallocated uh, weapons that were scheduled for demolition or somehow took off the books and sold them to the gangs. And when ba- right before Batman gets there, he commits suicide rather than face the consequences. And so we have this huge explosion of color. The sky outside with these brilliant oranges and yellows, the super bright American flag. And the symbolism is not subtle. Mm-mm. America is dead and has killed itself. I mean, that is the symbolism mm-hmm. of this. And as we go on, we see that the mutants have gathered in this sort of wasteland outside the city, a garbage dump. And we get to meet, for the first time, the mutant leader. What do you think of the mutant leader here? He looks like a boss from Borderlands. He does, doesn't he? Even the torch he's holding for fire and light is kind of like weirdly science fiction-y. He has giant fangs. Things for teeth. He has like these things embedded in his skin, like that look like shark teeth. Mm-hmm. And strangely, one super erect red nipple, which th- is really disturbing. I think it's one of the like red shark teeth pointed into it. Actually, it could well be. <laughs> I mean, everything about this guy is kind of disturbing. <laughs> and Batman shows up in his new Batmobile. Which would you like to describe it? It's basically Batmobile, but a tank. It, somebody <laughs> looked at an Abrams tank and went, that's for pussies. <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, There's no better way to describe it. <laughs> and he just is like, I'm an old man, but I'm a rich fuck old man, and I can blow these fuckers up. And he just starts shooting. And so the mutant leader... Uh, uh, challenges him to come out and fight. And Batman realizes he needs to kind of break his spirit. So he gets out, and the mutant leader beats the living shit out of Batman. And then takes a crowbar and just starts smacking him. Now, Carrie happens to show up at that second. This is her meeting Batman for the first time. Grabs the crowbar, pulls the visor off the mutant leader's face, and blinds him with mud long enough for Batman to escape. Or, sorry, Batman throws mud in his face. Carrie helps him into the Batmobile and they get away. 
with medical aid from Alfred over the remote system. Now, we flip now to very bright panels as we go to the White House. And we just see floating flags of red and blue American flags until they zoom in and then back out on a yellow and red iconic S. Superman, in case you're not clear. And the dialogue is between the president, who is somehow still Reagan, even though this is presumably far in the future. I I think Reagan's head is just alive in a jar, (laughs) being fed like one of the characters from Futurama, you know? And, you know, he's giving orders to Superman, who's now operating in secret. You know, he's working for America, but the superheroes have kind of all disappeared. And the president, when Superman says, yes, sir, says, good boy. I mean, the intent being clear, he's a lapdog. He follows orders. The, as the story goes on, we see Batman hurt, he recovers, the Joker's talking to the psychiatrist. All these things happen, and Carrie's introduced to the Batcave. We also see the influence of Batman on Gotham starting to change things. You know, there's a thug here who dresses up as a Batman to go kill higher-level thugs. There's a shopkeeper who comes out of his store when he sees a woman being mugged and uses a rolling pin to smash up the uh, gang member trying to rob her. People are starting to remember that Gotham can be protected. Now, there's good and bad in this. You know, one guy's a complete psycho and goes into a porn theater where he shoots the place up, inspired by Batman. But then we also get these shopkeepers protecting women on the street, which is good. So we see this desire to create order, and everybody's interpreting it in their own way. Um, And we start to see jail cells steadily filling up with more and more members of the mutant gang. Uh, But there's still a huge presence out there and taking orders from the mutant leader who managed to get arrested and put in jail after he was immobilized by the Batman. And their mutants are so powerful that the mayor actually goes to talk to him to see if he can find a way to keep the mutants from doing more. So the mayor walks in there, and the mutant leader's sitting there, and Jim Gordon is standing outside with his gun, and I will simply read it to you. I hear a nervous giggle and an animal growl. I hear handcuff links snap. He rushes in the door and there are just red smears on the wall behind him. I see something I'll take to my grave. Some idiot stops me from doing the obvious thing. He has his gun pointed at the mutant. Uh, What the mutant leader did was using his teeth, jump across the table and tear out the mare's throat with his teeth. And kill him. And start to eat him before they manage to pull him off cannibals yeah they're not nice people yeah so as the story goes on we see that bruce is now is using an exoskeleton to enhance his strength because he doesn't have the physical capability he once did and we see him go out uh on the batmobile with now carrie dressed as a mutant they start spreading the word there's going to be an event back at the wasteland dump And Batman breaks the mutant leader out to drag him there. 
They get in the ground, in the mute, in the mud, and the mutant leader yells, Face me, fool! I'll kill you! I'll show you who rules Gotham City! Okay, boy. Show me. And they're sitting around watching. and They're in the mud, covered in mud. All mud except for when one of them draws blood and creates a red line down them. Mm-hmm. And we hear Batman's thoughts. He's fast. Faster than I am. And stronger. And seemingly impervious to pain. But they do come smarter. And nobody's very fast when he's thigh deep in mud. I wait for him to try a kick. Give him just the right kind of cut above the eyes. The kind that bleeds. My mistake was to try to match his savagery. To fight like a young man. Right on schedule, the blood hits his eyes. I grab a clump of mud. He charges blind. Quick one to the nerve cluster in his deltoid. It doesn't hit him, but no force on earth could help him move his left left arm now. His right is fast, too fast. Hmm? What's the deltroid? Um, muscle group. Mm. A nerve center there. Mm. So they're fighting back and forth. The mutants are watching. Some of them are making commentary. Mutant leader hits Batman. Blackness comes in from the edges. I get sick of the arm and kill it below the elbow. He spins at the perfect moment, goes from my throat. Have to take us down. Now, they're on the ground. If any of you have ever watched, like, mixed martial arts, you know that all fights eventually end up on the floor. It's just true. So they're on the ground now, and Batman goes, now out loud, You don't get it, boy. Sit in a mud hole. It's an operating table, and I'm the surgeon. Now to himself again, as all the mutants watch, he thinks, something tells me to stop with the leg. I don't listen to it. And then we see him sitting up victorious. The mutant leader is totally broken. And so have the will of the mutants. And in fact, we next see in a news montage, mutants who are taking off their visors and painting their faces with blue bats claiming to now be adherents of this sort of self-organized Batman cult. Wow, they really are a cult. Just jump into one cult leader to the next. Right. Now, uh, Gordon is relieved. We get a new commissioner of the police, a woman named Ellen Yindel. She is less willing to play game with the play games with the Batman, so he becomes a villain again. Uh, we see these weird neo-Nazis robbing a liquor store. Including someone who looks like Brigitte Nelson, who's not wearing any kind of shirt, but swatsikas tattooed over her breasts. It's, it's, it's an evocative imagery. Not sexy, but evocative. I'll give you that. You, you look like you want to say something. I, I, I don't know. It's something I didn't think I would ever see. I know, right? Um, and then there's this old woman in the store who turns out to be Batman in disguise and then beats him up. So this all kind of gives like this vague feeling of like an old Batman comic. You know, he's out beating up the bad guys who are doing bad things, but there's a bigger story here about society. Oh, and by the way, she's wearing assless chaps with some sort of tattooing on the butt cheeks. I think it's Swatsikas again. I think so. I just can't see it well. 
I think it almost feels like it's making fun of how revealing female supervillain outfits are. It could well be. Oh, there we go. That's a good picture of it. Yeah, that's what it goes. Yeah. And, you know, beating up Nazis never stops being fun. Yeah. Because they're Nazis. So all of a sudden, as Bruce in this outfit is fighting her, suddenly the wall behind them explodes and there's a flash of blue light and movement. She turns around and starts shooting, and it does nothing. But something moving too fast for anyone to see bends drain pipes around her to hold her and melts the gun in her hand. And a voice, disembodied voice, says, Bruce, we have to talk. I'm busy tonight. You just cost me hours. Tomorrow morning, my place. Stay out of my way until then. And then we see that blue flash of light again hurtle up into the sky. This leads to um, this great image that's been redone a lot of Batman and Carrie jumping through the sky. Now, Frank Miller has done several sequels to The Dark Knight Returns, which feature Carrie and other characters. Uh, If somebody out there, perhaps emboldened by by talking about this story, chooses to go out and read The Dark Knight Returns, feel free to stop at it. Those sequels, quality is questionable. But we can talk about that some other time, too. As the story goes on, we find this doll that's been put in place to blow up. And we know from earlier in the story that the doll maker has worked for the Joker and seeks the Joker's approval. He made some stuff for Two-Face during his little crime plan. Mm-hmm. And we find out that the Joker, with that crackpot psychologist, psychiatrist, is going to be on the David Letterman show. The David Letterman show, for those not born in the 20th century, uh, was a super popular late night talk show Mm -hmm. that was on after The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Mm. So you had to watch it at like 1 a.m. But it was super popular and, and... relatively edgy for the time. Hmm. Now we get to see this gorgeous few page spread with bright colors as Superman is there in riding boots and jeans. And for some reason, like this white shirt that's like down the middle, like he's an Italian Lothario on a bodice ripper romance cover. It's kind of <laughs> weird, but he hasn't aged. Because he's Superman. Because Kryptonian, I guess. But they have a back and forth, and basically he's telling Bruce, you're stirring people up. You're making people remember when people like I was around. That's not good. You have to stop. People have to think we're all gone. I mean, this is why Superman acts in secret now. Why he wouldn't show himself when you know, capturing that woman. And Bruce basically tells him to go fuck himself because he's Bruce fucking Wayne. Mm -hmm. Or to borrow from a Grant Morrison Batman story, I'm the goddamn Batman. (laughs) And we see that in the following pages, Superman is still out there doing stuff. He is intercepting Russian jets and destroying them in the air. He's acting as a deterrent. And then we get to the David Letterman studio and find out that 
the Joker has arranged to gas and murder everybody in the audience, include and the psychiatrist and David Letterman himself, so that he's the only one that escapes. He just kills everyone. Oh, including Dr. Ruth Westheimer, who, if you don't know that name, uh, in the 80s, she was a... I don't know if she was Austrian or German, but one of the two. I, I want to say German, though. She was an older lady, uh, very short, high-pitched voice, who did a lot of advice about people's sex lives. Uh, it was a little on the scandalous side for Americans who were like, I don't talk about that. And she was like, shut up. If you want to have healthy relationships, you need to like deal with this shit. Mm-hmm. Stop being so goddamn American and prudish. <laughs> um, seriously, the British, and then by virtue of that, Americans and Canadians have a lot of hang-ups. Just saying. Mm-hmm. So they all end up uh, killed by the Joker gas with these permanently disfiguring smiles on their faces. And the Joker escapes. At the same time, the Batman might have been able to stop this, except the building was completely covered by the new commissioner's police in tactical gear, and he's been having to fight his way through them. So they basically protected the Joker, allowing him to kill all these people. Joy. And we have flashbacks back and forth with Superman fighting wars for the U.S. Um, And we have the Joker show up at Kyle Escort Services. Selena Kyle is now running an escort service. And she was mentioned earlier in the book when Mm. we saw a... uh, uh, She left a voicemail for Bruce Wayne saying that he wished... She wished he'd call and she was lonely. So he appears to have kept some social connection with her over the years. Uh, As things go on, we see a politician who has been infected with something outside wrapping himself in a flag about to commit suicide. He, the police try to grab him, but he slips away and falls. Another case of how the police are failing to maintain any order in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, Batman gets critical information and finds Selina Kyle tied up in a Wonder Woman outfit and beat up by the Joker. Again, there's this whole disillusionment thing. I mean, we've had a general die in an American flag. We've had a major politician leap off a building wrapped in an American flag. Wonder Woman's costume is basically an American flag. And Joker is beating up and abusing America. The symbolism is not light. Notice, however, that even though this is an escort agency, and the ladies might be doing a little more than escorting, Mm -hmm. no judgment is thrown on them for that here. Mm -hmm. They're not treated like crap. Uh, She has been abused because the Joker abuses everybody. Mm -hmm. And her girls were used to get to these important figures. Mm -hmm. Again, the Batman has to escape the commissioner and her attack squad who's going after him. And we get more flashbacks with Batman. So where are they going? What he, the mystery solved in the course of all this is that the Joker is headed to the county fair. To hand out free cotton candy to all the kids. Because he's the Joker. And guess what's going to be in that cotton candy? Nothing good. Instant acting poison. Right. So, by the time Batman gets there, 
There are literally dead kids all over the fairgrounds. If you really want to punch home that someone's evil, have them kill kids. Right. Well, and whole giant, you know, uh, Mm. uh, rooms taping TV shows and stuff like that, Mm. right? So, a chase goes through the amusement park. Um, The art's well done. They end up in a house of mirrors having a confrontation. And keep in mind, up to this point, the Batman has still never killed anybody. He has faced people holding guns to kids. And even then, he found a way using a gun to shoot them to disarm them without having to kill them. Mm -hmm. And there's a great moment I love here. The Joker's running away. And this little kid is there and says, Batman, he's getting away. Get up. You got to kick his. Watch your language, son. (laughs) Yes, sir. (laughs) So he's still standing for order. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, kids shouldn't curse. Even when they've just been held hostage by psychos and everything, right? Which I think is a little unfair, but okay. A whole bunch of stuff, other stuff going on. I'm not going to go into all that here. Uh... In this, in the final confrontation, they end up standing in the water of the tunnel of love facing each other. Mm. You know, some people uh, have drawn on this scene of them facing each other in the tunnel of love for the whole homosexual rage argument. I think it was put here just to be ironic. You know, that this showdown between these two nemesi uh, was so much hatred for each other. And in some ways, the cause of each other living happens in a tunnel of love. I don't think it has any hidden symbolism. It's just ironic. People read a little too deep into this. Yes. In a really creepy way. In the end, the Batman has his hands on the Joker's head and twists. Snap. In his dying moments, the Joker says... I'm very, very disappointed with you, my sweet. The moment was perfect. And you didn't have the nerve. Paralysis? Really? And then you find out that he didn't kill the Joker. He didn't snap his neck. He just paralyzed him. He used his martial arts skills and perfect knowledge to paralyze the Joker so that the Joker would never be able to hurt people again. Mm-hmm. Um, except the Joker ends up dead anyway. Yeah. It's gone. He's gone. And effectively, the Batman killed him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, actually, let me read this exchange. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's important enough in the symbolism. Uh, the Joker says, Just an ounce or two more pressure. And do I hear sirens? Yes. Come close. You won't get far, because the police are after Batman, too. Mm-hmm. But then it doesn't matter. If you do, they'll kill you for this. And they'll never know that you didn't have the nerve. I'll see you in hell. The devil's strength, he twists and twists. And what's left of the sandy, he goes. But the twist didn't just paralyze him. It was enough to kill him. And he's gone. And by the time they drag his corpse outside, uh, the Batman is spitting on his face. But the body is booby-trapped, the police are disorganized, and the Batman escapes. So, is that the end of the story? No! 
Because the Joker represented this chaos, right? This malicious mm. chaos. But the fact is, it's already spread through Gotham. Gotham is in this horrible, toxic place. And there's a sort of new thing to be developed here. But we do see these new acolytes of the Batman, these ex-mutants showing up with shotguns, trying to defend people. But they're brutal about it. One of them with a shotgun faces off against some guys stealing from a convenience store and just puts a shotgun in the guy's face and blows his head off. Meanwhile, Superman is up in the sky trying to stop uh, ICBM. We don't get a lot of the international news in the story, but obviously the Chinese uh, or Russians have just launched what's probably a nuclear missile at us, and Superman is stopping it. Um, he ends up re-diverting it some, but it still explodes and causes a blackout with this electric magnetic pulse. I like the coloring they did for him in the sky where he's in all, where it's completely blacked out except for the colors of his cape and the S on his chest. Mm -hmm. As this happens and Gotham descends into chaos with no electricity or light, Batman drags himself up, uh, from his injuries and fight with the Joker and basically takes out the guards at the county jail and releases all the mutants. Or, or sorry, he doesn't. The mutants manage to free themselves. Sorry. Um, meanwhile, because all the electronics are down, fortunately, Batman has horses. Oh, joy! So, Batman, using a horse, rides to where the acolytes of the Batman are gathered and gathers them up. Sorry, with the confusion about him freeing the mutants, I'm mentally confusing a storyline in a future thing. Um, but anyway, he grabs from one of the acolytes the gun and breaks it in his hands. He says, this loud, clumsy, stupid thing, this is the weapon of the enemy. We do not need it. We will not use it. Our weapons are quiet, precise, and time I will teach you tonight. You will rely on your fists and your brains. Tonight, we are the law. Tonight, I am the law. We ride. Yep, and he's a cult leader now. They're and these acolytes are given horses. And they ride into Gotham. And the mutants from the jail are going crazy. And Batman, with these ex-mutants, just rides up throws razor-edged blades into their hands and arms of the ones holding guns. The commissioner is watching quietly from a window, and Batman stands in front of the gathered mutants who've broken out of jail and says, Boys, girls, I'm here to appeal to your community spirit. I'm sure you're all eager to help. And like that, they get in line. So fires are raging across the city. We see people, including Commissioner Gordon, helping uh, make a bucket line to stop fires. Uh, and the Batman tries to start reestablishing order. Admittedly, a lot of it with intimidation and violence, but to keep the city in one place and to keep innocents from dying. Meanwhile, up in the sky, in the electromagnetic field, Superman has been cut off from the sun, his source of energy. And he seems to be dying. 
Um, but he manages to fall back to Earth and connect with the plants and sort of drain solar energy from the plants to stay alive. He looks like a zombie. <laughs> he is rough. We get a lot of sub-stories that are really good. Um, and then oh. this full-page spread of Batman leading the mutants and his acolytes. Amazing page, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I think Frank Miller must like horses, because he put a lot of attention in these horses. They're mm-hmm. beautiful. It's, it's always fun to actually see animals in comic books that, that look like the animal mm-hmm. they're supposed to represent. Because... No no offense to comic book artists, but sometimes animals can look kind of funky. Yeah. Well, I mean, art physiology is hard. Mm-hmm. Anatomy is hard. Mm-hmm. So Superman is talking to the president. He's getting orders. And then we see Bruce Wayne back at Wayne Manor. And this bald guy with a sort of Errol Flynn mustache and short beard and white hair coming down from the sides of his head. The top of his head is completely bald. And if you're a comic book fan, you know immediately who it is. If you're not, you may have to be clued in. But here's what he says. He says, You've always had it wrong, Bruce. Giving them such a big target. Sure, you play it mysterious. But it's a loud kind of mysterious man, especially lately. you got to learn how to make those sons of bitches work for you. Look, it's been five years since I blew out of prison. You know how I've kept busy. This is Oliver Queen, the Green Arrow. Oh, that explains the mustache. Yep. And Bruce Wayne is recruiting him for something. And we find out that he's lost, that uh, Queen has lost his left arm. Wait, why was he in jail? We don't know. Whatever events happened in the history of this uh, sort of mythology. And we've talked in the past about how Marvel has multiple universes. DC, depending on which reboot retcon either does or does not, uh, in the current version of the DC Comics uh, uh, multiverse, they do, and these events are in their own multiverse. Okay. Separate from mainstream continuity. But, But clearly, the president needs Batman to stop, Batman won't stop, and Superman is the president's weapon. So as Bruce Wayne is outside... Heat vision streaks down from the sky and writes in the ground in fiery letters, Where? Bruce Wayne just looks up in the sky and says, Crime Alley. So, why is this all happening? This is happening because we're talking in this about two different kinds of man versus society. Uh, The man versus mankind itself and then the man versus the social structures. Notice the commissioner, when Batman's recruiting the mutants, stays quiet up in her office. She's now acknowledging what that cop earlier did, that the Batman is necessary at times. Um, And the reason the Batman can be a vigilante and still noble is because he doesn't want to be there. (coughs) And he wants to follow the rules and not kill. He, he wants to eventually be able to retire and leave everything. But in facing the Joker, he represent, he, he, it was man versus society in terms of the psychology of society. Order versus chaos. Now, it's order versus order. He's facing not the psychology of society, 
but facing against the social institutions of society, including the political ones who have their own idea of order that don't agree with his. And why? Because it comes down to values. Batman values life. Batman values liberty. Batman values every single person living as good a life as they can, while the government's social institutional norms that they want to protect, that the order they see as important, involves the government's control of society and control of individuals to keep order. Batman's ultimate idea of order is essentially a state where everybody can be free and happy. While the government's idea of order is an institution where everybody is controlled by the government. And the Batman is not happy with this. So it becomes Superman versus Batman. Superman attacks. Uh, Batman uses some stuff to just kind of kick him around a second. Um, I'm going to read this just for fun here. You know, Superman's flying in with these helicopters above him, and Batman's thinking, that's right, Clark, scan the area, bathe it with x-rays, activate those 600 missiles I worked so hard on. This is a power's test. I want to see how much of you survived that nuclear explosion. He'd have to be at full speed to dodge them all. He isn't. I watched them kick him around for a minute. I've had worse times. <laughs> Now, keep in mind, historically, Batman and Superman, despite being so different, have been paired up as the best of friends. There have been many iterations of a title called World's Finest, which has usually featured Batman and Superman uh, working closely together. Um, I, I'm not going to spoil what happens next in the story, but let's just say Batman and Superman go toe-to-toe, and Batman uses Green Arrow's help, and basically comes out on top. He, but, then has a heart attack and dies, with Superman holding him. That's kind of anticlimactic. And Wayne Manor's basically collapsed. And people know what Superman did at Bruce Wayne's funeral. She calls him a son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. And... Then, as everyone's leaving, bum bum, bum bum, bum bum, bum Batman faked his death because he's Batman. We now see him in the caves under Wayne Manor, with the acolytes and the ex mutants and Carrie and Oliver Queen, and they start planning sort of their new home down there. Setting up a new civilized order. And the decision is basically to create an, uh, 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 an ordered society without evil. They have to GTFO. Wow, he really is a cult leader now. Yeah. I was joking um, before this point. And Frank Miller himself kind of did this. Frank Miller GTFO'd and moved to uh, Italy. Of course, Italy. Where he says he's very happy. I- I'm sure it's lovely. And, you know, people who talk about Frank Miller like he's an evil psycho, I I have spoken with him. Uh, uh, I've talked with him via electronic media. Uh, I've read interviews he's done. And he doesn't come across as that kind of psycho Mm. at all. Uh, um, So what did you think of that? Not what 
expected. It's not what you expected? What did you expect? Honestly, I'm not sure, but not that ending. I wasn't expecting moral of the story, Batman's a cult leader. Well, no, <laughs> that's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is, is that sometimes society is so broken that you have to get out. Mm-hmm. And the moral of that story was that while Gotham could be saved, it couldn't be redeemed. America could not be redeemed. Yeah, I wasn't expecting so dark of an ending. And trust me, uh, uh, the 80s were a pretty dark time for writing about America. Um, the next one, we're already like an hour and a half in. I've been trying to keep podcasts to an hour. So I'm going to go through this next one really quick. Speed run. Boom, 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 boom. All right, let's do this. It's going to be under a half hour, I promise. There will be 155 on that clock or less. Okay. Okay. The Killing Joke by Alan Moore and Brian Boland. Brian Boland, by the way, did all the artwork on this. He did pencils, coloring, inking. Amazing work. Oh, that's a terrifying joker. Yes. And notice how different it is from the one in The Dark Knight Returns. The Dark Knight Returns looked like a normal guy, except for... Green hair, white skin, red lips, but all very muted, not dramatic. Yeah, he could, have, he could have passed for an albino. Right. This Joker... Looks like a clown. And is... I mean, he screams psycho in his mm-hmm. every mannerism. At the beginning of it, we see this ongoing motif we're going to see through the book of these raindrops hitting a wet ground, creating these overlapping concentric circles. It is important because it is a symbol of both order and chaos. These things are chaotically falling, chaotically overlapping, chaotically interacting with each other, but each is perfect concentric circles, which is a very orderly image. This will happen repeatedly in the book. Uh, the setting of the book is draws on the 60s Batman in a way. We get the silhouette of the 60s Batmobile. Batman goes into Arkham Asylum to face the Joker and says... Hello. I've come to talk. I've been thinking lately about you and me, about what's going to happen to us in the end. We're going to kill each other, aren't we? And and the Joker is just sitting there playing solitaire. And it doesn't take long, but Batman figures out this isn't the Joker. The Joker's painted somebody up and escaped again. Because it's Arkham Asylum. It's It's, basically more of a resting home for supervillains. It's the Arkham fucking revolving door is what it is. It's a temporary care home for super killers who can leave when they want. It's a motel. <laughs> it's the shittiest motel in the world. And that's why they leave so frequently. <laughs> right. So we find the Joker at an amusement park. Because, of course, he's going to have an evil base of operations at an amusement park. Mm-hmm. And we get a flashback origin for him. Oh. Now, there have been a few proposed origins for the Joker over the years. But not many. The general consensus has been... That the Joker is mysterious. Because if Batman represents the desire for order, the rich kid from a rich family who built the city and has a specific origin, then the Joker is his flip side. The nameless chaos that you don't know where the rage comes from. Mm -hmm. However, they decided to give him an origin here. However, it is not canonical. Although there have been attempts in recent years to resolve these different origins that have been presented over time for the Joker. We're not going to talk about that today. Anyway, just to let people know. It turns out he is a comedian who's failed with a pregnant wife and turns to committing a crime to try to make money to take care of his family. 
Now, as he does this, however, uh, he actually goes out to commit the crime, and the police stop by to talk to him at the bar he's at to tell them that his wife is dead, that a freak accident happened and she passed away along with her unborn child. He is threatened by the criminals who take him on the robbery anyway, where he falls into the vat and goes insane. This is the origin of the representation of Joker under the idea of what's called the One Bad Day origin. Now, the One Bad Day is a motif that has popped up a number of times in literature and film. There's a famous film starring, I think it's Kirk Douglas, called Falling Down, where this everyday guy just finally snaps. Everything goes wrong on this day, and it is just the needles on the camel's back of a lifetime of pain, and he just snaps and loses it and goes off on everybody around him, becoming dangerous. And I, be- I have not seen it, but there is a Joker film with uh, Joaquin Phoenix, and I think they use this principle for that Joker. Meanwhile, the Joker traditionally is more like the jo- Heath Ledger's Joker, the anonymous unknown, you know, mm. symbol of rage. Yeah, I think the really only thing you think of when you think of the Joker's backstory is the falling into the vat. Right. It's what happens before that that everybody keeps an eye, mm-hmm. uh, uh, doesn't agree on. So, of course, the Batman's trying to find out where the Joker is, and the Joker turns out to be at Commissioner Gordon's apartment when Commissioner Gordon's uh, niece, Barbara, opens the door and the Joker shoots her at point-blank range, which leads to severing her spine and her becoming a paraplegic. Now... This is especially painful for Batman because he doesn't just know her casually, but Barbara Gordon is Batgirl. Mm-hmm. Isn't this the origin of her becoming Oracle? Yes. Mm-hmm. And we will at some point discuss Oracle in more depth because I'm not very happy with how she was treated over the years after building her up as a paraplegic who did not let her medical condition define her. It was largely ignored, because apparently you can't have a paraplegic who's a superhero. Um, I've never been happy with that, but this is the origin of her becoming paraplegic. And obviously, you know, a painful event. Meanwhile, we see Commissioner Gordon, who's back at the carnival, and the Joker has recruited these freaks. You know, like these little midgets dressed as baby and shaved hairless with little wings on them. And it's just a freak show. Um, and, and then he's sitting on a throne surrounded with just piles of amputated dolls and stuff. <laughs> and the, and when Gordon asks what's going on, um, cause he's being dragged around and naked. The Joker says, you're going mad. And the Joker basically is trying to impose his one bad day on Gordon. He's trying to prove that anybody can go mad in the right circumstances. Anybody has a bad enough day and they'll go mad just like the Joker did. Hmm. And his argument is, you know, if we look at the reaction to society as do you choose to try to bring order to the chaos in society or do you embrace the chaos and spread it? The Joker's argument is that he's the sane one and Batman is crazy. Because the only sane response to chaos is to embrace it. Hmm. And that's the story we have. Now, eventually, 
Batman, and we and we repeatedly see those same raindrops on the ground, creating those concentric circles. It's totally kind of a cool image. It is. It's very cool. Now, Batman does eventually show up. He defeats the Joker. He frees Gordon. Uh, Joker runs away into a funhouse. As he frees Gordon from the cage, Gordon says, I'm okay. You have to go after him. I want him brought in, but I want him brought in by the book. Gordon was not broken. Gordon is enraged. His niece was shot. Mm -hmm. But he still wants things done properly. Batman goes in to do his best. They fight. He throws Joker through a window. Joker breaks a board over Batman's head. They go back and forth. Eventually, Joker's in a position to shoot Batman. And it's a toy gun with a little click, click, click sign that pops out of it. He says, what are you waiting for? I shot a defenseless girl. I terrorized an old man. Why don't you kick the hell out of me and get a standing ovation from the public gallery? Because I'm doing this one by the book. And because I don't want to. Do you understand? I don't want to hurt you. I don't want either of us to end up killing the other. But we're running out of alternatives and we both know it. And Joker stands there in the rain looking forlorn. He didn't break Gordon. He can't break the Batman. He says, you know, it's funny. The situation, it reminds me of a joke. See, there are these two guys in a lunatic asylum. And one night, one night they decide they didn't like living in an asylum anymore. So they decide they're going to escape. And they get up on the roof. And there, just across the narrow gap, they see the rooftops of the town stretching away in the moonlight to freedom. Now, the first guy, he jumps right across with no problem. But his friend, the friend daren't make the leap, you see? He's afraid of falling. And so the first guy has an idea. He says, hey, I have my flashlight with me. I'll shine it across the gap between the buildings and you can walk along the beam and join me. But the second guy shakes his head. He says, what do you think? I am crazy. You turn it off when I was halfway across. Hmm. So they're both crazy. And yet one thinks the other is mad because he doesn't understand his kind of crazy. One guy thinks the light can create a pathway for a guy to walk on. And the other guy just doesn't trust the other guy, but doesn't realize that he can't walk on it. So he acts sanely for an insane reason. And the implication here is that Batman is acting insane in a sane way, but he's actually as batshit crazy as the Joker is. Mm-hmm. And the Joker starts laughing. And the Batman actually starts laughing. And they laugh together as Batman takes him off to jail, and we end on those concentric circles in the rain puddles. So what do you think? I, I don't know what to say. But we have this idea of madness and how do you respond to madness and all these other things. I kind of agree with the idea that they're both kind of two different sides of, of the same coin. Oh, absolutely. And that's why they are always facing off against each other. Because the battle between Batman and the Joker, metaphorically, isn't a good guy beating up a bad guy. It's the fight for the soul of Gotham. Mm -hmm. It's a fight for sanity. Symbolically, when he defeats the Joker, he defeats chaos. Mm -hmm. Not just the specific chaos Joker does, but by showing the Joker can't win, showing that chaos won't win. Mm -hmm. 
Um, which makes... And the Batman is a very different symbol than, say, Superman. Batman is essentially the scion of Gotham. He's the son of Gotham. He's inherited the rulership of Gotham and needs to protect it. Uh, unlike, say, Superman, who is essentially just kind of a guardian angel. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's been our longest one in a while. I got Killing Joke in, in 10 minutes, though. Nice. Nice. And, and this art style of Joker will haunt me in my dreams. Very uh, uh, borrowed from the past, though. Definitely not original to hear. But we're going to do more Batman in the future, talking about some of the iconic Batman stories that people don't need a lot of Batman reading to rock. So, Ooh. But I wanted to go ahead and do these. <laughs> so for now, I'm going to tell people, keep reading comics, and tune in next time. Bye. Bye.